Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Hey, this is Sean Illing, and I write for Vox about politics and philosophy. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I think a lot about death. And I don't mean that in a morose, I want it all to end sort of way. I mean, I think about what the reality of death means for life. We all instinctively turn away from these thoughts. But what if there's real value in facing it head on? Many of the great philosophical traditions recognize that what we're really after is the best life possible, right here and right now. And that's because this life is all we have. And the fact that it will end means that we can't afford to waste it. Max Linsky is the co-founder of the podcast studio Pineapple Street Media and the host of the Long Form Podcast. He has a new project called 70 Over 70. He's interviewing 70 people over 70 years old about their lives not as a walk down memory lane, but as an attempt to learn something about living well from people who have already done so much of it. I wanted to sit down with Max to talk about the vision behind 70 over 70. And the result was a raw conversation about elderhood, about facing our own extinction, about how a pandemic clarified how we see or don't see all of these things, and ultimately how to live a life we all know will end. Max Lenski, welcome to the show. Hey, Sean. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me, sir. Sean, I'm so nervous. Ah, oh, shoot me both. I'm not used to being on this side of it, man. I'm really excited about this conversation. I don't know exactly where it's going to go. I, I suspect it might get a little deep. So, you know, I'm ready for a good cry. I hope you are too. <laughs> the chances of me not crying, I feel like, are very low. <laughs> well, let me just start by asking you. What is this project really for you? Was this a kind of therapy that evolved into something different or or bigger? Or did you have a pretty clear vision of what you wanted to do right from the start? I definitely didn't have a clear vision from the start. And I think on some level, like all of podcasting for me is kind of therapeutic. My experience of it from the very beginning has been like, I don't want to say it's a scam, but it feels close to that. Like for some reason, when you put microphones in front of people, all of a sudden they're willing to have these conversations with you that in another context, they never would be. And this show, not unlike long form, which I've been hosting for years, in a lot of ways, it just feels like an excuse to have conversations that I desperately would have wanted to have anyway, you know, in that way, I think it is therapeutic. Like they're just the conversations that I would really want to have. But the evolution of this project in particular, I think 
it's kind of on two different timelines. So one of them is I've been thinking about doing a show where I interviewed older people for a long time, like six years. I really love doing the interviews for long form. I wanted to host another show. And this is really the only idea I've ever had for what else I would want to host. And I think there's a lot of reasons I didn't get around to doing it. But one of them is that I'm, I, I'm not totally sure I was, I was ready to. Um, I think the conversations are, are hard. And I knew that there would be something that I wanted to get out of them, but I, I didn't totally know what it was. And then I think it was something about the pandemic and not being able to see my parents. And also over the pandemic, my dad turned 80 and he had this health scare. And, and to be honest, like it just felt like he was struggling for the first time that I could really remember. And all of a sudden I sort of felt like I had more of a reason or, 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 or the reason that I wanted to do it was more clarified. And, and it really had a lot to do with my folks and my dad in particular and trying to figure out what this time in his life was like for him. Because he and I are really close, have been my whole life. He's been my ace, you know what I mean? Like he's like, he's my rabbi. And I've checked in with him when things were tough for me my whole life. And he's been a real rock in that way. And over this last year, it just felt like things were hard for him in a way that I think he was struggling to talk about a little bit. And so all of a sudden it felt like, okay, well, well maybe this is the reason that I should do this show and do it now is that it could help me figure out a little bit better where he is and maybe be a decent kid to him, you know? So that that's that's part of why I think it's happening now. Well, when you say there was something clarifying about about this moment, I mean, was it that you looked at your dad and he suddenly seemed to be much closer to death than maybe you had been willing to to notice before and that that was kind of the impetus to to get off your ass and get this thing done and get it done now while you still had time? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I I had um both of my grandmothers died within a month of each other um, a couple of years ago. And I hadn't been particularly close with them when I was a kid. I, I'm like the youngest one in my family. And um, I was always kind of the baby. But I got real time with both of them before they died. And I did these interviews with them, like on microphone. And both of them thought the exercise was pretty ridiculous, but it was pretty meaningful for me. And yeah, I think it was part of it is trying to like document something with him. But but really it was it was more than that. I mean, I think it kind of comes back to what I was saying before about podcasting feeling like a little bit of a scam. Like I really wanted to talk to him about how he was feeling. And I think I really was scared myself. Yeah, I don't know. He turned 80, he was in the hospital, and he was just slowing down. I think he was depressed and and yes, death felt closer, but also it just felt like for the first time that I could remember, like I didn't know exactly how to talk to him about it. You know, there was this thing that he and I couldn't talk about after decades and decades of me feeling pretty comfortable talking to him about anything. And in a way, I think like putting some microphones in front of us, I don't know, maybe freed me up to have a conversation with him that I didn't quite know how to have. Here's a clip from the prologue of 70 over 70. You seem very convinced that you've gotten very old. Yeah, I feel, uh, I mean, I think a lot has to do with turning 80. I think a lot has to do with COVID. I think a lot has to do with 
you know, feeling like I have more time in my hands, although I don't accomplish anything more. <laughs> Are you bored? I don't feel bored. No. Uh, you just feel bad. I feel old. I mean, I feel I I, I feel the sense of um, physical constant physical challenge. I don't. Um, it, it feels to me that the way I'm feeling now is part of the dying process. Can I ask why your dad was hospitalized? Was it COVID related or, or, or something else? Is it serious? It was serious. He had, um, he had emergency quadruple bypass surgery several years ago and, uh, like went in for a physical and didn't leave, went straight to the hospital, had quadruple bypass the next morning. And the only other time I could remember us not knowing exactly what to say to each other was the night before that surgery. So he called me and said, you know, like something happened at my doctor's appointment today and don't worry about it at all, but I'm having surgery tomorrow. And I was like, what kind of surgery are you having tomorrow? And he's like, uh, like pretty serious heart surgery, I think. And so I went to the hospital and was sitting there in the room with him. My brother flew in from Los Angeles and there was this moment before my brother got there where I was sitting there in the hospital with him and, and um, neither of us knew how to talk about it. But the thing we didn't know how to talk about was that he was scared. You know what I mean? He was he was really scared. It was the kind of surgery you you don't always wake up from. And so the surgery that he had at Christmas was to go in and replace a bunch of the the work that had been done years ago. And it also had come up very suddenly and the doctors told him that he had to do it like as soon as possible. So it was um it wasn't COVID related, but um there's a long history of heart failure in my family. And, and um, I don't know, man, every time someone opens up your chest and starts messing around with your heart, you have those, uh, those kind of big thoughts. That's serious shit. Yeah. I mean, you had to have some reservations about this project though, right? I mean, people do therapy in private for a reason, you know? Um, so you knew you were to do this, to do it well, and you did you're going to have to put yourself out there in a really kind of naked, vulnerable way. And you seem to be okay with that. Uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I think it's more self-delusion than like having worked through it and being okay with it. Like uh, just talking to you now is making me realize that like maybe someone's actually going to listen to this thing, which is totally terrifying. And part of the reason it's terrifying is, yeah, like I'm out there or whatever. But my hope is that you listen to it. and maybe it pushes you a little bit to have a conversation with someone that you wouldn't have had otherwise. You know, that's the story I'm telling myself about, uh, about why I, I'm making my therapy so public. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to your dad and your mom really. Cause obviously this is a family project in, in a lot of ways and, and, and they hover over all of it, but you did talk to 70 other people. Well, all of them notable to one degree or another, some more than others. I mean, you talk to people like Madeline Albright and, Dan Rather, uh, Dion Warwick, and, and others. I, I'm curious, why these people? Um, why did you choose the people that you did? All of them for really different reasons. And, and when we were thinking about who to talk to, the goal was really to try and find something really specific to talk to everyone about and to find some reason to talk to them now. And one of the things that I was really focused on from the start was like, this shouldn't be like a walk down memory lane. This isn't like, 
let's go through your resume, tell all the stories you've told before, like, tell me about that time in 1956, you know, like, like that, that was not, that was not the conversation I was interested in having. The thing I wanted to understand was what it was like to be them right now. And so whether it was Madeleine Albright or Dan Rather or Dionne Warwick, there was something specific with each person that I was really genuinely curious about. And, and a big part of that was what's driving you now? Like, what are your goals now? What are your ambitions now? How connected are you to those moments in your life? What's the gap between how the world sees you and how you see yourself? So how do you find your ambition and your purpose? And what are you trying to do with the rest of the time you have left? You know, so like that, I think is the, is the sort of overarching question is, is like, how do you stay present and how does that feel? But there's pretty different versions of that conversation with different people. You know, there's a, a common stereotype of, of elderly people as jaded and grumpy and tired of life, that kind of thing. But the small snippet of conversations that, that I've heard are really the opposite of that. I mean, they're deeply introspective for sure, but you know, they're also kind of joyous and life affirming. Did that surprise you in any way? No. I mean, the short answer is, is no, it didn't surprise me. And, and it's because I haven't found anyone close to that person you're describing. Like everyone I have talked to is alive, is fully fucking alive, you know, and maybe has some regrets or some things they're hung up on, maybe is bummed about one aspect of their life or another, certainly like not being able to have complete confidence and trust in your body is a thing that comes up a lot in these conversations. But it's not grumpiness. Like that hasn't been the energy of a single one of these conversations. And maybe that's self-selection in terms of who we talk to, but I don't think that's it. To me, what I found is like, if you were a grumpy 25-year-old or a grumpy 35-year-old, you might be a grumpy 85-year-old too. I don't know. But if you have tried to lead a full life, if that's been important to you, I don't think that changes. I don't think that goes away. And the thing that comes back again and again and again in these conversations is people talking about being present, you know, and the way that they are in their lives is the way, same way they were when they were 35, 45, 55, whatever, you know, they're, they're here and they're themselves now and they're trying to figure it out. You know, I just talked to um, Diana Nyad who is this incredible athlete. She swam from Cuba to Key West when she was in her 60s. No human had ever done it before. And she did it when she was 63, I think. And she's become completely obsessed with tennis. She plays tennis seven days a week. Never played tennis before she was 70. And now she's like an obsessive tennis player, you know? She's just the same person she's always been. She's just applying it to a new stage of her life. And that's the thing that I was trying to figure out. I mean, that's the way it connects to my, my dad, I think, was just trying to talk to people about how they have found that energy, how they've stayed themselves, even as, you know, the contours of their lives have changed, the demands on their schedules have changed, what they're able to do day to day has changed. They still feel like themselves, you know? Maybe that idea was surprising, but it was only surprising in my own, like, naive bullshit way. You know what I mean? Like, it was only surprising because I'm an idiot. 
not because it was actually surprising. You mentioned presence just now, and I think your dad says in the prologue that he felt like he was too preoccupied for most of his life to be present or to to find the joy uh, in front of him. The only theory that I have is that it has something to do with seeing your life as a journey that is doesn't go downhill but evolves in different ways. And I wish I had, I, I, I think I would have had more joy in my life if I had been able to think about it that way. And I think it's very hard to be both totally present and to be able to think about that, you know. And I think sometimes I was too preoccupied. Was that a common refrain or common theme? Yeah, that, that, that comes up. It comes up again and again. And I think part of that is about the people I'm talking to, you know, who were very sort of professionally successful and ambitious. And I think there's just an innate tension between being focused on your professional life and the things that you might have to give up in your personal life. And I think when my dad was talking about that, he was talking about his personal life. Like, I think he was talking about his family and and his friends. And, you know, there's a guy who was like on planes 200 days a year for 20 years, you know, and there's just something you give up doing that. And that definitely has come up again and again in the conversations. But it's, you know, it's like one of these things that, feels so big, but also the idea is pretty simple. And the way that it's manifested in these conversations more is like, it's less people beating themselves up for not being present and having lots of regrets and more just trying to like very gently hold my hand and be like, that's actually the whole thing. The whole thing is just trying to be present. It's not more complicated than that, you know? The other thing that does come up over and over again in these conversations is like, no one's comfortable with the idea that they have it all figured out. And there, there's definitely like a recurring theme in these things where I've got of like, can you just tell me the answer? Can you just like give me the uh, cliff notes here on how to live well? And again, people are very gentle, sort of hold my hand a little bit and are like, doesn't work like that. That's, the, that's, not, that's not the game. Well, I ask in part because I think there are certain truths, for lack of a better word, about life and about what matters that tend to reveal themselves too late often, or or at least after we've already wasted a lot of time. And so I'm curious what the people you spoke to maybe learned about living later in life that they missed earlier in life or couldn't see earlier in life for whatever reason. Yeah. I mean, I think that that gets at like some pretty basic idea of the show, which is, you know, on some level, what I heard was not like, I wish I'd just taken that trip to Fiji, you know? It was more like, I wish I just had the conversations that I couldn't find the time or the space or the energy or the sort of courage to have. It was about connecting to people. That's that's the thing that I feel like some of these folks have been able to articulate is that they chose something else over 
deepening the connection that they had to the people around them. And that now with a little bit more space in their lives, they're able to see that. But again, it's not like, oh man, I fucked up, you know? That's not the that's not the energy of the conversations. It, it, it's much more like, so I'm trying to do that now. I'm trying to do that more now. We've got these um, short kind of tops for the show with not so famous people, people from all over the world who are just kind of like sharing something they've learned, telling a story. And I just listened to one this morning about a woman who sort of like encountered this idea of the deathbed test. And she'd grown up in a house in which her parents were very professionally ambitious and it was kind of a cold house and she wasn't super connected to them, but she like emulated them professionally and was very ambitious herself and then had a therapist, I think when she was in her fifties, who said, you got to start thinking about the deathbed test. Like, what's the thing you're going to care about on your deathbed? And she said it completely changed her orientation towards her daughter and she just stopped going out for drinks after work and going to have dinner and going to all these events and just asked herself like on my deathbed would I rather I went to this event or would I rather I went home and had dinner with my daughter you know once you get closer to your actual deathbed you don't have to give yourself the test anymore but again it's 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 not it's been striking in these conversations the degree to which people are not hung up on things they did in the past, but are trying to live the way they want to now and take whatever they have learned and apply it and embody it, you know? Let's take a quick break, but when we're back, as Max has gotten older, he's been thinking more about his relationship with his dad and wondering if he took it all for granted. A lot of us live like our parents are going to be around forever. Maybe we can't help it. But what can we do to make sure we don't take the people we do love for granted? That's after the break. I think we all tend to treat the people we care about, especially our parents, like they'll be around forever, probably for all kinds of reasons, most of them bad. <laughs> Do you feel like maybe you took your dad for granted all those years and that this in some ways was a, a kind of an attempt to, to remedy that? Oh, I don't even, I don't even feel like I think maybe that was the case. I, I, I know it quite deeply. Um, I don't think there's any question that, I have taken him for granted. And I think, you know, I think the truth is like, it's these conversations where I really, for the first time, really allowed myself to sit with the fact that he's, he's going to be gone at some point. And I mean, I just can't tell you, Sean, what a fact of my life he's been and what an absolute privilege that has been. I mean, I, I've had, you know, every kind of privilege you can have. I mean, it's just the stack of privileges in my life is difficult to fathom for me, but nothing's more significant than this conversation I've been able to have with him and absolutely I've taken it for granted. I mean, I just, it's not just taking it for granted. It's like, I couldn't imagine how I would navigate the world without it, you know? And honestly, like, 
<laughs> I still don't fucking know how I'm going to do it. Uh, but, but yeah, I do think doing the show and having these conversations with him and, and honestly having these conversations with all these other people is, has made it less scary. You know, it's made it more real and a little less scary. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, my mom passed away very suddenly last year, last oh, summer. Sean, I'm sorry, man. Actually, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's hard to talk about right now. Yesterday was the first Mother's Day since she passed. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I spent half the day planting flowers and probably the other half of the day crying, cleaning out my garage. But I, I bring that up in, in part because of how it has impacted my relationship with my dad, who is still here. And he's relatively young. He's in his early 60s and he's very healthy, thank God, as far as we know. But I've noticed since my mom died how much more sensitive I am to his mortality. It's almost like he looks a decade older to me mm-hmm. overnight. Not because he actually looks any different, just because I'm 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 terrified of losing him. And I'm just I'm attuned to it in a way I, I wasn't before. Has that changed your relationship with him at all? I think it's deepened it in, in quiet but obvious ways. I mean, I just, he came over the other day and helped me paint my deck, you know, and, and normally that kind of thing would feel like a a chore, but I had an incredible time because I was just hanging out with my dad and he was, he was here and I just appreciate it maybe in a way I did before. And it's a fucking shame that it takes loss of that magnitude to, to maybe appreciate those sorts of things. But that's the way it is. You know, life is a vast spectacle of loss and it's only when you start losing things that you, you start to really appreciate what you had in the first place. And I don't know, I listen to some of these conversations and just talking to you now, it's, it's kind of, I'm sort of processing some of these thoughts in, in real time, but I imagine some of that connects with, with where you're at and, and how you're feeling. Yeah, it, it, it really does. And, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm so sorry to hear about your mom and, I really appreciate you having this conversation with me because it seems like maybe not a totally easy one for you to have. But um, I think in a lot of ways, that's exactly it. I think it's true of, of my dad. And then in some ways, it's true of the show overall. Like, again, you know, I had I had the idea for this thing years ago and I can't totally figure out why I didn't do it. But something just flipped. And I do think it was that you know, it wasn't just that like my dad started to look a decade older. He like really was a decade older. He's a very capable old man, but he's an old man now. And being able to sit with that all of a sudden made it so pressing to talk to him, but then also like to talk to all these other people, you know, it's just like you realize, man, the window is closing to have these conversations. And and we've had multiple people, Sean, who I was lined up to talk to who passed away before the interview happened. And Mm. so I don't want to wait. Like I want to document it while I still can, you know? Well, one of the cool things about the project, you know, obviously your dad is, is part of it. and Your mom is also part of it. She's drawing portraits of, of all of your guests. And this is really, as I said earlier, a family project for you. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, is 70 over 70 possible without your parents? I mean, if we strip all that is shit down um, to its essence, is this, show really 
I don't know, a, a monument to your parents? I think it's a lot of things. I mean, there's a whole team who's working on the show. The lead producer is named Jess Hackle, and and this is a thing that Jess and I did together. And she brought a lot of this same energy and inspiration from her own family and for wanting to hear the stories of people that it wouldn't have occurred to me to hear from. There's a big part of me that feels like this is much bigger than me. Like there's lots of people who have worked on the show, but, but also, um, it is about hearing from all of these different people who have these very different perspectives and very different approaches to the same time in their lives. So, so in one way, it feels, you know, much bigger than my, folks. This feels like a, a good place to maybe zoom back a little bit and connect us to some of the larger questions you're, you're dealing with here. And you said earlier in this conversation that one of the things you wanted to do was explore this, the gap between how the world sees elderly people and, and how elderly people see themselves. How big is that gap? I think in the macro way you're talking about, my instinct is that they're not really seen. You know, I mean, that's, that's been one of the really powerful experiences of this for me is my sense is that even these quite well-known people that I've gotten the chance to talk to don't have a chance to talk like this very often. When they are approached, it is more like walk down memory lane, let's go through your greatest hits, you know, or can you offer some comment on some current event, you know? But I don't know that a lot of people come to them and say, like, what, what, what have you figured out? How are you doing? What's your relationship to death right now? I don't know. I don't know that they get a chance to have that conversation, at least not publicly, very often. And, and I don't know why that is. Uh, it's not clear to me why, like, culturally, younger people don't ask older people those kinds of questions more often. That is a mystery to me. Because again, like, this is exactly what I want to be doing. I can't think of a better way to spend my time than getting to ask these questions. So, so it, in the macro sense, that's how it feels to me. But there's also an individual way, which is like, particularly if you were a really well-known person earlier in your life, I think there's a tendency for that image of you in sort of like the public consciousness to be kind of frozen in ember, you know? And I was really interested in how that version lines up with their day-to-day -day experience now. Does that feel like you all the time? Are those the same people? Or, or, or does that person feel like some other version of yourself? You know, like I, I, was, I was really curious to know the answer to that. Yeah, I, I was almost going to say that we're we're cruel to elderly people in this culture, but I think in some ways that's it's even worse than that. Uh, we're in, indifferent, like you just said, and yeah, I was thinking about this a lot in the context of some of the commentary in those early days when when COVID kind of washed over us and exploded, and we were in lockdown and. You can see, I mean, it's always subtext, never text, but there was a real, just complete disregard for old people as though they were just discardable. You know, yeah, this is bad, but it's, it's bad 
you know, it's not really that bad because it's, you know, it's mostly people over 80 dying. So <laughs> right. what's the fuss about, you know? In those early months, it wasn't subtext. It was literally text. There were several, like, uh, elected officials in this country who their public statement was, it's probably worth some older people dying to make sure that the economy stays strong. That was like a political position. You know, to me, that was pretty revealing. But yeah, I think it's not cruelty. I think it's indifference. And again, like, I don't have some overarching, like, political idea here. To me, it's pretty simple. I just think there are all of these people all over the world who just lived a lot more than the rest of us. They've just learned some shit that we don't know yet. And I think it's weird we don't ask. I don't get it. I wanted to go find the answers to these questions, and I couldn't really. And I was surprised by that. Look, I, I don't have the answers either. I, I'm, you know, I'll throw this out there, and, and you can tell me what you think, if you think anything at all. We live in a very libertarian society, a very individualistic society. And, you know, and that means we're, we're very much steeped in a language of, of rights, right? What other people cannot do to us, what other people cannot take from us. But as a consequence of that, we lack a language or really even a way of thinking about obligations, what we owe to other people, especially our elders. And I think you see that manifest in a really gross way in this particular space, right? Because elderly people aren't as productive anymore in our society. And so we don't give a shit, right? We're not, we're not responsible for anyone but ourselves. And so it makes sense to me that we would discard them in the way we do. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. I mean, that was basically the argument in those early months of COVID, right? It was just like the economics of uh, keeping these people alive don't totally play when you look at like the balance sheet. Man, I just can't, I can't think of something that's more like intrinsically valuable than wisdom. <laughs> you know, I don't want to pretend like the way these conversations go are like, I'm like, hey, welcome to the show. And then the person's just like, here are all the answers to the meaning of life. I've got it all figured out. That's not the conversation at all. But there's something so freeing in hearing that, in hearing that like Sister Helen Prejean does not have it all figured out. She's such a badass. She's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Well, you know. It's different when you get to be 81 because inside yourself, you are simply yourself. But time changes for me in that I'll think of projects I'm going to do or when I think of a year like this will be at hmm, 2026. Hmm, wonder if I'll be around or I wonder if I should undertake this. You know, my mother has died. My father has died. Uh my sister died in 2016, and now my brother, I always call him my little brother, Louis, he's five years younger than me, has been diagnosed with COVID, and he's now on a ventilator in ICU. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And something happens when you look at the totality or the wholeness of a person's life. The feeling I had when... Mama died, Daddy and Marianne. It was like the wholeness of their life somehow became present. You can't comprehend it. Don't don't get the idea that I have rationally figured this whole thing out. 
But I figured out too that the deepest things in life you can you do not comprehend. I find that freeing because you know, for me, like I feel like I've spent a not insignificant part of my life, and this is embarrassing, but it's true, just trying to figure it all out. You know what I mean? Just try to get like all the answers. Well, look, I can tell you as as somebody who was dumb enough to to go to graduate school for philosophy that wisdom is not valued in the marketplace. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not uh it's not very valuable um in our culture. You didn't trade that philosophy PhD for like a sweet six-figure gig? Yeah, I should have been an accountant or some shit like that. <laughs> Maybe I should have gone to law school. I don't know. No, I hear what you're saying and that and that sounds right to me. It sounds um dumb to me, but it sounds right. To be clear, I'm not saying I have any wisdom to share, but at least on paper it appeared that I did, but nobody was interested. Well, I'm sure you guys will edit out the whole part of this where I ask you for your (laughs) answers to the meaning of life, Sean. Yeah, nobody wants that. Okay, we're going to take one more short break, but when we come back, we assume elderly people have acquired a kind of wisdom about life and death and that we can apply what they've learned to our own lives. That's not exactly wrong, but it's also not that simple. That's after the break. Something that that I said earlier, you know, that that the things that matter most in life tend to make themselves known near the end of it. I, I am curious, what was the thing people seemed to value the most as they confronted their own mortality? What kinds of things were they prioritizing above all else? Was it relationships or or what? I think that's been a challenging question given the context in which I've been having these conversations. You know, I haven't done a single one of these interviews in person. Everything is over Zoom. The vast majority of people I've talked to have been home alone or with one other person for months and months and months, you know? And so I think it absolutely was relationships, but it's kind of hard to separate where this time in their lives ends and, and the pandemic begins. I think that's a pretty big part of the show is that this time really gave people a chance to sit and think, you know, that they probably wouldn't have gotten otherwise. You know, I talked to like Dionne Warwick, who was home alone and had been home alone for the first time since she was a kid. I mean, like under 10. It was the first time she hadn't been on tour, hadn't been out doing shit. And it had given her a chance to think, about relationships and about, you know, not just people in her life now, but people she had lost. She spent most of our conversation talking about the impact that her grandfather had had on her and how she had come back to that and was thinking about that a lot now. But also, like, she was thinking about what she was going to do going forward. And then also, during the pandemic, she had gotten on Twitter and I don't know if you've seen her Twitter, Sean, but Dion Warwick, incredible at Twitter. Fantastic. No shit. And she'd connected with all these young artists. And so now she's like recording with Chance in the weekend because she made friends with them on Twitter. You know? So it, it really is. It's so connected to this thing that we have all been living through. But yeah, I think 
the other thing that's been striking to me is what has felt to me like a pretty clear divide between people who have really reckoned with their own death and people who have not. And I've talked to some people who I think have still not totally wrapped their heads around the fact that that they're going to go, you know? And then I talked to some other people who I think really have and have spent some real time thinking about that. And, and that, that latter group was pretty amazing to talk to because I can't think of a single person who's really contemplated their own death, who seemed to me to have really sat with that and come out of it being scared. You know, I had a lot of people tell me, I don't want to die. You know, I'm not, I'm not interested in that happening anytime soon, but I'm not scared, you know, and, and people had these quite beautiful articulations of what they thought might be waiting for them on the other side. And I found that, again, just really inspiring, you know? Like, I don't think I've really reckoned with my own death, Sean. I'm not sure if this is uh, this is uh, where you want to go in this conversation, me talking about my own death. But I can tell you, my friend, I don't think I've wrapped my head around the fact that it's going to happen. And uh, This is exactly I, if, where I want to go. All right. Well, this is what I'm telling you. I don't. I think it is still not really, like, occurred to me in a real way that I'm going to die. I just turned 40 and I do think I have some access to the fact that I'm going to get old. Like I, I, I get that now, I think, but man, I don't think I'm very in touch with the idea that I'm really going to, that I'm really going to die, that I'm going to leave a world where my kids are, you know? You're making me think of one of my favorite philosophers is dead German guy named Schopenhauer, who's kind of famously morose, but also low-key awesome. This is a real philosophy grad school flex right now. Yeah, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm laying it on thick now. Uh, he said something like, we spend our whole lives in anticipation of, of better things, better happiness, only to realize at the end that the things we let go by, so unregarded and so unenjoyed, was our life. That it was just this succession of moments and, and we missed them. And, you know, when you realize that this life will end, it is kind of insane how we use or misuse our attention, the things we waste time on, the petty resentments and grudges, the relationships we let die on the vine. We behave like the show will go on forever, and yet we all know it won't. And yet there's also a sense in which that kind of talk is useless and annoying because you can't always live like that all the time. You have to plan and you have to think about the future. And that means maybe missing some of the present. And I guess the challenge is finding that balance, but no one has the fucking answers to that. It's, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think you can live, you can aspire to live like that more, you know, yeah. like, I think that's totally right. You know, I, I've heard a version of that over and over again in these conversations. Like, you still got to do like a shopping list and put your shoes on in the morning. Like, you still got to do that stuff. But also, you know, from moments in your life in which you have been open, where you have been present, you know 
that you can get there. And so on some level, like if, if there is a thing that I've been able to internalize from these conversations, it's like, man, it's worth trying to figure out how to feel that way more. You know, it's worth trying to get to a place where part of what you're doing is trying to shift that balance so that when those moments do happen, when you do have those opportunities, when those chances to like connect with someone, particularly someone who you've known your whole life or who you've known all of theirs, that you take it, you know? What do you think the the 70 or the 80-year-old version of Max would say to the 40-year-old version of Max? What would he tell you to do or not do? I don't know, man. I've thought about that a little bit. I've wondered what um what 80-year-old Max would think of this project. Best thing I can tell you is like, I really believe in having these conversations. It was what I was taught to do as a kid. On some level, this is what my dad does for a living. And I'm the least handy person in the world. Every time I cook, I set off the smoke detector. But I was pushed from a young age to try and talk about uncomfortable things, you know, to try and bring up questions that were going to be hard to answer. And I'd like to think that the 80-year-old version of myself would feel the same way that my 40-year-old self does, which is if you've got these questions, you owe it to yourself to ask. I, I do want to make it one last attempt to, to push the, the philosopher out of you because you, you say at one point in the prologue that you, you had this idea that life was a thing to be solved. Clearly, you think that was wrong now, but I'll ask you this. If life isn't a puzzle to be solved, what the hell is it? <clears throat> I will be honest with you that even attempting to answer this question makes me pretty uncomfortable because um, the thing I feel the most confident in is that I don't know the answer to this question. So uh, I can tell you where I'm at right now today, and I'm sure it will change. I think right now the point feels to me like to try, just to try, you know, don't not try and don't hide from fear and i think i really did think that sean for a long time man i just thought it was like i thought you could get it all right and i think what that's really about is being scared to get it wrong you know the part that feels true to me right now is that you can't let being scared to be wrong stop you from trying and I do think that, that that's come up in these conversations a lot because it's not just a thing that these people I'm talking to have learned. It's a thing that they're still doing, you know? And that's what's so meaningful to me about these conversations is like the whole point is to keep trying. It's not about the end result at all, you know? I mean, forgive my like hallmarkiness here, but... It's about the process, not not the product, you know? No, no, it's, I think that's right. I, it's interesting that you use the, the phrase hide from, from fear. One of the things I like about what you're, you're trying to do here is I, I think a lot of people think 
of proximity to death as something kind of morose or or depressing but maybe the opposite is true i mean if if death is what gives life its meaning and shape then then maybe we should stay close to it maybe that's the gift of elderhood yeah yeah i think i think staying close to it allows you to stay open allows you to be more present more often not all the time it's not about being like an enlightened monk somewhere it's about being more present more often and i do think that the closer you are to your own mortality no matter where you are in your life is a pretty good way of doing that maybe one of the reasons we don't ask the elderly people in our lives these sorts of questions is that i think as a culture we're very uncomfortable with death we don't like to think about it we don't like to talk about it we don't like to broach it it's awkward maybe that explains some not all but some of the hesitance there oh for sure i mean i think there's like i think there are a lot of things that we don't talk about because they're uncomfortable and my experience is that once you get through the initial discomfort there's real connection on the other side and i don't think that's true for everyone you know i i i have people in my life who are very clear that they don't want to talk about that stuff and it's not cuz they're scared to it's because they don't want to fucking talk about it it's not ambiguous for them and what i have found in my in my own life is that those are the people that i personally gravitate toward less and less you know and i i can't i don't know what you're like at like a party sean but like awkward yeah i'm the awkward guy you know what i mean <laughs> i'm like uh i'm like the guy who's like uh i just met you tell me about all your fears you know um i don't think that's necessarily like the right way to be it's definitely the wrong way to be at a party but it's pretty like firmly how i'm wired and so yeah i i, I do think that we don't have those conversations because they're uncomfortable. I do think for some people, it's not just uncomfortable. It's literally not how they want to spend their time. But my experience is that where you really learn something about someone else, about your relationship to that person, about yourself, is when you get outside your comfort zone, you know? Like the real stuff, like the, the meaty stuff, the honest stuff, is like right on the other side of that discomfort. Hmm. What do you hope people take from this if they go along the journey with you? My hope is that people will hear things in these conversations that I don't hear, you know, that things will jump out and, and stick to your ribs a little bit, you know. I mean, I'm sure you have these things in your life, Sean, whether it's something someone said to you or something that a long dead German guy wrote that just sticks in your sticks in your brain, you know what I mean? Becomes something that you come back to over and over and over again. And one goal would be that people that listen to it have one or two moments like that in one of these conversations, just something that that resonates for them that they can hold on to and come back to. But the bigger thing is maybe a pretty lofty goal, but my best case scenario for this project is that someone listens to one of these conversations and decides to call someone up who they wouldn't have called otherwise. That it gives someone who's listening just that like slight 
little nudge that maybe they needed to have a conversation that otherwise they might not have had. And that if someone came around later on in their life and asked, you know, what they wish they'd done differently, having that conversation would have been on the list, you know? That's my big pie in the sky dream for the thing is that it just it helps a conversation or two happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Well, it's a beautiful dream and a, a beautiful project. And this is a beautiful conversation. I, I, I appreciate you you coming on to have it. Like I told you at the beginning, I I really wasn't sure where we would go, but I've I found this personally very cathartic. So thank you, Max. I, I appreciate it. You know, Sean, podcasting can be very therapeutic. That was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> it felt that way to me too, Sean. And um I really appreciate it. And I, I feel like I gotta say before we go, I'm 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 really sorry about your mom. And I appreciate you having this conversation with me in the wake of that. I appreciate that, Max. This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests, guest hosts, or topics... Send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode.